Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, Nathan Chan here. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today we're speaking with Uri Levine and he's the co-founder of two unicorn startups, one called Waze and another called Move It. And he's also a successful investor and mentor to many startup founders. He's going to give us an absolute masterclass when it comes to building a product of serious scale, how to find product market fit, and how to build a company that's impacting the lives of hundreds of millions of people, just like he's done with companies like Waze. So Uri, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how'd you get your job? Okay, how'd you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? You know, I probably always have the entrepreneurship spirit and I was always looking to start new things. I, you know, I had this uh, different approach for everything and um, and I wouldn't take anything for granted. I would uh, challenge uh, pretty much everything um, and... Uh, <clears throat> And every time that I face something that I didn't like, then I ask myself, why is that so? And can we do it differently? And with the ways journey, it was pretty much the same. I, you know, I hate traffic jams and this is usually what leads to, uh, to building a startup. You run into something that, uh, creates strong emotional engagement for you and you, um, you either love something really, or you hate something really. And you tell yourself, no, 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 I'm going to change that. Right. And, and you dream about it and you think about it and. And eventually there is usually an aha moment that you realize that, wait a minute, I can actually do that. Uh, and then you, it takes more time until you, you know, incubate the idea in your head and until you think about it from multiple perspectives. 
Um, and then you go and tell your friends, this is what I'm going to do. And the first reaction is always the same. And these are the nice guys, right? These are the, the nice guys will tell you this will never go and work. The lesser nicer guys, they will tell you this is a, the stupidest idea that they ever heard. And that actually encourages you because now you have something to prove. And for me, that was always the case with all the startups that I, uh, I've started. Uh, it was always about um, frustration. It was always about running into something that I really don't like. And, and I, I and the urge to change that. Now, in general, I would say um, in your startup journey, you should start with a problem. So think of a problem, a big problem. Something that uh, if you solve that, the world will become a way better place. And then ask yourself, so who has this problem? Now, if you happen to be the only person on the planet with this problem, then I would say uh, go to a shrink. Way cheaper than building a startup. But if a lot of people actually have this problem, what you'll really want to do next is go and speak with those people and understand their perception of the problem and only then go and build a solution. Now, if you follow this path, you start with the problem and then you speak with the users and understand their perception, and then you build the solution, and your solution works, it's guaranteed that you're creating value. If you start with the solution, you might be building something that no one cares, and that's going to be really frustrating. But then two more things happen when you do these dialogues with people. If the problem is real for them, if they think that this is an issue, they will tell you their version of it. And they will send you on a mission to solve that problem for them. And this is where essentially you fall in love with the problem. And when you are in love with the problem, the problem is going to serve two purposes of your journey. The first one, this is going to be the North Star of your journey. And when you have a North Star, you're going to make less deviations from your course. And you increase the likelihood of being successful. The second one is that your story is going to be way more compelling. Just imagine that we will be here in 2007, and I will tell you I'm going to build an AI crowdsource-based navigation system. And you're going to say, oh, yeah, very interesting. But no one cares. If I will tell you I'm going to help you to avoid traffic jams, then you do care. And so when your story is associated with the problem or associated with the value that you bring, then it's easier to create engagement with your customers, with your users, with the media, with, uh, uh, you know, with investors, with everyone. And, and this is why, you know, eventually I wrote the book, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution, in order to help entrepreneurs to become more successful. So... How did you start Waze? Tell us about what did the team look like and what made them special? You know, we, we were the three founders at the beginning when we started Waze. And, uh, um, and we met by someone made an intro for, for me and them. Um, and we had the same vision. And we decided the, same, the first day that we met that this is what we got to do. Now, obviously, it takes a little bit more time to meet the, you know, more meetings and more meetings to to further incubate the idea on one hand and also realize that this is the team that you would like to build. Now, when you are at the beginning of the journey, people underestimate the importance of the team and the importance of the DNA, right? So we have a mission and you don't think about the company that you're building, but actually you're going into two parallel tracks, right? One is to solve a problem. The other one is that you're actually building a working place and when we started that, and, and this is funny because in, in 1999, I had uh, three friends that started uh, a startup called uh, Human Click that no one heard that name. But 16 months later, that company was acquired by LivePerson, which is now a public company on NASDAQ. And usually, you know, when you are an entrepreneur, when you are a, start, a startup guy and your startup is being acquired, and they usually the acquirer will ask you to stay for two or three years or whatever it is. And, and what happened during this period of time is that you can actually divide this period of time into, um, into three parts, right? The first part is that you're making all of your efforts to make integration work. And then the second part is that you're looking for someone to replace you. And then the third part is that you're starting to think of your next startup. Now, these guys stayed until 2007, seven years after the acquisition. And asked them why. And they told me that was the best working place we ever had. 
And we decided that we're going to build ways the same way, that this is going to be the best working place we ever had. And a lot of people would say, yeah, and yeah, that's a great idea, but what does it really mean? And, and it's simple. Ask yourself, what was the great place that you, uh, up until now, that you worked at? And what made that great place? And take that part and say, this is going to be my company. This is going to be part of my DNA. So maybe this is about priorities. Maybe this is about how decisions are being made. Maybe this is about who do we hire and how do we fire. Maybe this is about um, the mission and so forth. Um, and, and you end up with uh, a list of very few things that you really care about. And for us, that was people and drivers. And we say that, okay, this is going to be the best working place we ever had because we're going to work with people that we like to spend time with. And we ended up with actually having uh, two criteria for hiring and firing. One was the ability to actually perform the job, and the other one was the, the, the likelihood that we will actually like to work with these guys. And we ended up with uh, having very low attrition in amazing working place. And all the startups that I've built afterwards share the same vision. Some of them are actually doing it even better. Um, and uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, when you go on the journey of building a startup, then this is going to be a very long journey. And your ability to influence the DNA is at the very beginning. If you will try to change a DNA of existing company, it's very hard. It takes a lot a lot of time and a lot of effort. But if you define that at the beginning, you're actually going to end up with a working place that you really like. And this is going to make amazing companies. Amazing companies are not just about what they're doing, it's about how they are doing it. And in order to create or to start, don't think about the, the what you're doing, think about the why you're doing it. Yeah, so the purpose. Exactly. The purpose, the reason, the why, the, the, because the why leads to the value and that you're going to create. And at the end of the day, entrepreneurship journey is about value creation. At the end of the day, this is what we want. We want to change the world through creating value. And the more value that we can create, then the bigger impact that we're going to have on the world. And obviously, the results of the success are going to be more significant. And, and the startup journey, and, and look, this is... Um, I, I will define that in three dimensions. And, and the first one, this is going to be a roller coaster journey with ups and downs and ups and downs. And if you'll tell me that all the businesses in the world have ups and downs, I agree. But the frequency of those when you are building the startups, way higher. And I think that I heard the best quote on that from Ben Horvitz. Ben Horvitz is one of the founders of uh, a recent Horvitz venture capital firm. And before that, he used to be a CEO of a startup. And he was asked, whether or not he was sleeping well at night as a CEO of a startup. And he said, oh, yeah, I slept like a baby. I woke up every two hours and cried. And that's really the reality. Look, it, you are, there are days that you are, you know, switching your, your mindset a few times a day, right? There are days that start the morning with amazing news and you ended up with, uh, uh, with no news. And, uh, um, you know, and, and that could be around everything, right? So maybe this is about... Uh, um, an investor is returning your call and then you're really happy with that. And then they're telling you, we decided not to invest right? or, or something like that. Right. And so, so the, the extremes are actually pretty dramatic. And so it's a roller coaster there. It's a journey of failures. Look, we're trying to build something new that no one did before. And, and we think that we know exactly what we're doing, but the reality is that we don't. So we try. We try one thing and it doesn't work. We try another thing and it doesn't work. We keep on trying different things until we find one thing that does work. And so once you realize that this is going to be a journey of failures, then there are two immediate conclusions. The first one, if you're afraid to fail, then in reality you already failed because you're not going to try. Albert Einstein used to say that if you haven't failed that because you haven't tried anything new before. If you're going to try new things, you will fail. The second one, which is even more important, and in particular for entrepreneurs, once you decided to go on this journey and you realize that this is going to be a journey of failures, then fail fast. Because when you fail fast, you actually still have plenty of time to try another things, to make another attempt, to take another approach, to have another version of it, and so forth. And the more attempts that you're going to have, you increase the likelihood of actually making it. Just imagine that you need to score from half court. Now, if you have one shot 
and you are not Steph Curry, you are likely to miss that. But if you actually have multiple shots, one of them you're going to make. And, uh, and this is dramatic, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, when you think about it, then you tell yourself, um, the biggest enemy of good enough is perfect. You don't need to be perfect in order to win the market. You need to be good enough. And for a second, I want us to think of two twin sisters companies started exactly the same day, have exactly the same product, have exactly the same teams, making exactly the same progress. And at a certain point of time, this company is saying, you know what, our product really suck. We're going to keep on iterating. And this company is saying the same thing. Our product really suck, but we are going to go to the market with it. From this point on, this company is making way faster progress because they have feedback from real users. And so if you ask me what is the level of the product that you need to launch, an embarrassing level, something that you would actually embarrass with, something that doesn't really work, but you're trying to figure out if there is a value in your proposition. And if there is a value, then you want to, to improve that. And based on the feedbacks that you're going to get from the users, you are actually going to improve that way faster. And so, roller coaster journey, journey of failures, and long journey. So it's a long roller coaster journey of failures, and it's way longer than you think it is. And the longest part at the beginning is to figure out product market fit. Product market fit basically means that you create value to your customers, right? And so, if you don't figure out product market fit, you will die. As simple as that. In fact, you never heard of a company that did not figure out product market fit. They simply died. That's it. But I want you to think for a second on all the companies, let's say all the applications that you're using every day. So, so being, uh, you know, WhatsApp, Waze, uh, Netflix, Uber, uh, Instagram, searching Google, whatever it is. And ask yourself, what is the difference between any of those today and the first time that you have used that? And the answer is that there is no difference. We are using WhatsApp today the same way that we used WhatsApp for the first time in our life. We are searching Google today the same way that we search Google for the first time in our life. We are using Waze or Uber or Netflix the same way. So once you figure out product market feed, which is the value that you create to your users, you don't change that anymore. It takes a long period of time to get to this phase, right? So it was uh, five years for Microsoft. It was four years for Waze. It was 10 years for Netflix. It's a long journey when you start until you figure out product market fit. And this is a long journey of roller coaster journey and failures because you're trying multiple iterations of the product until you find something that does work. And, and this is really interesting because once you get there to product market fit, and we are usually overestimating that we are, you know, we are really close to product market fit. It takes years to get there. And product market fit is measured by one metric. And it's a really simple one. If we define product market fit as the value that we bring, then retention is the only metric. Because if you bring value, they will come back. If you don't, they don't. That's it. As simple as that. Now, obviously, there are major differences between product that the frequency of use is high, and then you can measure it over a short period of time versus a product that the frequency of use is low. Let's say that you're filing tax returns, and this happens once a year and so forth. Um, and then, obviously, uh, you don't want to wait until next year to figure out if they're coming back or not. But, uh, but the reality is that that's the only metric that matters. And... Uh, um, and getting there is a, is a complex journey. It's long. It's, uh, is, um, you know, to a certain extent, I would say this is, um, people would like to think about it as more of an art, but I would say, no, there is a systematic approach that is going to not guarantee that you're going to get there, but increase the likelihood of getting there. And this is actually doing two things. Number one, you speak with the users that fail to use your product. So what most people like to do is that, okay, we're going to speak with users and they're going to tell us that the product is awesome. I want you to speak with the unusers, those that have tried once and gave up because they are going to tell you what was wrong. The people that are keep on using the product, it's not wrong for them. It's okay. 
but they might be, not be enough of them. And the only way for you to move forward is doing two things. Number one, speak with people that have tried the product and churn. Number two, watch new users. Because we have a very different ability to look at users than, than we would like to think that this is the case, right? So at the end of the day, and, and this goes, uh, um, so Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, wrote uh, the foreword to my book. And he called that the Bible for entrepreneurs. And, uh, um, you know, and the, when I sent him the first chapter, I said, I wish I had that when I started. And I met uh, um, uh, Woz um, about seven or eight years ago at the conference. We were both speaking at the conference in Guatemala. And uh, he was doing the opening keynote and I was doing the closing keynote. And we actually had an opportunity to have uh, uh, dinner the night before. And, and look, I'm... 58 years old. And so when I grew up, uh, Steve Wozniak was the technology guru of the world, right? And uh, so obviously I really loved the opportunity to uh, uh, to spend some time with him and I really wanted to have a selfie with him. So I took out my iPhone and I was lucky that I actually had an iPhone and, and not an Android. And uh, when you think of the iPhone and you want to take a picture, so you can do two things. You can click on the screen. Or you can use the volume button to actually take a picture. And this is exactly what I did. I, used, I, I was holding it like that for selfie and, uh, and I used the volume button. He said, finally. And I said, finally what? It finally someone using it the way that I meant it to be. Now, when you think about it, um, he was right. Just think of the evolution, right? So, so we were coming from stupid phones, not stupid, but feature phones and into smartphones and with a large display screen. And we basically say, okay, we're going to incorporate the digital camera capabilities into this phone. Now, digital camera, you were holding it like that and you were clicking right here in order to take a picture. So he took that functionality into, into the iPhone and basically say, this is how people are going to use that. Obviously, most people are using the screen, the bottom on the screen, to take pictures. And the realization is that there is no right or wrong in terms of using a product. There are simply different ways, and different people might be using the product differently. And so when you think of every product that you are using every day, and you basically, your state of mind is that this is how I use that, and therefore this is how it should be used, and therefore this is how everyone else is doing not exactly. Some people might be using it differently and their mindset is exactly the same, right? So they're basically saying, this is how I use that. And therefore, this is how it should be used. And therefore, everyone is using it this way. And there is only one way for you to find out that there are different people than you, is watch them. And so if you are leading a product development, if you're not a product market CTA, what you really want to do is go and watch users for the first time in their life because most of your users are going to be new users. And this is going to be, if you're successful, then this is going to be for the next 10, day, 10 years that most of your users are going to be on the next five years or seven years. Most of your users are going to be new users and you have to watch them in order to understand because your mindset is already biased. In fact, if we think of users, then then, you know, at the end of the day, anything that you'll take into a large number, you will end up with normal distribution. And, you know, and, and if you think of the ability of users to adopt something new, then we are looking into, um, you know, innovators that are about 2% of the population and then 15% of, of early adopters and then about 33% of the early majority. And, and forget the rest for a second, right? These three groups have very different characteristics in their ability to adapt something new. And your product is new. And the innovators, they are enthusiastic amateurs. They care about what you're doing. And the reality is that they are going to try that because it's new. And, and they don't even know if there is value for them that they are willing to explore that. And the first users of Waze was people that care about GPS and GIS and maps and navigation. And they might have multiple products and they wanted to explore this product as well. The second group 
what we call the early adopters, they are going, as soon as they realize that there is a value for them, they are going to try that. The third group is the, what we call the holy grail. This is the really large group of people that we are aiming our product for. And the challenge with them is that their state of mind is don't rock the boat. I'm happy with what I currently have. Don't change that. They are afraid of change. And so when you're going to tell them you should try that, then they're going to say, oh, yeah, very interesting. But they're not going to do anything because their state of mind is they are afraid of change. They are afraid of the situation that they will be facing something that they don't know how to use, that they will feel like idiots, and they don't want that. And you will need someone to guide them. And the only way that you can figure that out is if you watch them. Because if you don't, you don't know that they're like that. And so you watch them and you ask them why. And you will be surprised the types of answers that you're going to get. This is going to sound like, uh, oh, I didn't even know that I am allowed to do that. Or, oh, I didn't know that you have this feature. Or this is how I used to do things on the, on the previous app or service or whatever. And the biggest challenge is reaching out to those guys. Now, at the end of the day, if you're going to tell them that your product is better, better doesn't cut it. It needs to be different. And potentially it needs to be in a different business model, right? So potentially it's free and what they had up until now is paid. Um, and these are, these two things are the only way that are going to make you forward with your product market fit. You watch new users and you ask the churned user why. And what they tell you, this is your next version. It's not the feature set that you have. It's not the roadmap that you have of features. It's exactly what you tell, what they tell you that didn't work for them. So, so you know, th th this journey to figuring out product market fit is starting with understanding the users and then iterations, 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 and every time that you're making iteration is based on the feedback that you're doing, going to your to that you are hearing from your users. Um, this is the only way that you will eventually get to what you need to do. Now, this is really important to realize. Um, Leonardo da Vinci said that uh, um, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. So one of the things that happens is that, you know, we have the thesis that this feature is going to make the product market fit, right? And so we're building this feature and it's not. And so we're saying, okay, now it's not this feature, it's the next feature. We're building the next features and it's not. And we are keep on building features into the product until we find one feature that does work. And what we really should be doing at this phase is remove all other features. Because essentially, the number of features that you are using on, on you know, just imagine, think of all the applications that you have used uh, today. And uh, you are in um, Australia, so this is already uh, towards the, the later part of the day. And you, have, you probably have used some applications today. And ask yourself, how many features have I used in a in each of those applications that they have used today? And the answer is um, very few, very few. It might be one or two or three, and that's about it. So usability is a matter of simplicity and not feature set. In fact, feature sets create complexity, and it's the opposite of simplicity. And so when you want to reach a large audience, then you need to actually remove features in order to make your product simpler. And this is what will make them, you know, eventually use that. And, and I'm using some examples, you know, um, um, but by the way, if you want to know, if you want to figure out if a, if a feature is needed, then the best way is remove that feature. And if people scream, then it's needed. If it's not, if they don't scream, then they don't. Um, and, and so the, that, that, that part of simplifying the product is the one that is going to dramatically increase your product market fit because when you think of the early majority group, they are going to end up with using one or two features. That's about it. And the more features that there are, it's scarier for them. And so they're not even going to try if they figure out that, that we don't even know what to do here. And therefore, simplicity is the only key that you can actually create better adoption through simplicity. I want to speak about something.
else, by the way, which is uh, one of the biggest ties back into, you know, DNA and culture and reasons why startups fail. And I spoke with uh, a lot of entrepreneurs that their startup failed and asked them why, what happened? And about half told me the team was not right. And I kept on asking, okay, what do you mean the team was not right? And, and what I heard the most was that we had this guy not good enough or this guy. So not good enough was the main reason. Another reason that I heard quite often was uh, we had uh, communication issues, right? Something that I actually called uh, ego management issues. And then I asked them the most interesting question, when did you know that the team is not right? And that was actually a pretty scary answer. All of them told me within the first month. So he said, wait a minute. If you knew within the first month that the team is not right and you didn't do anything, the problem was not that the team was not right. The problem was that the CEO did not make hard decisions. Making easy decisions is easy. Making hard decisions is hard. This is why most people don't like to make the hard decisions. Now, what happened is that there is someone that shouldn't be there and the CEO doesn't do anything. The challenge is that if there is someone that shouldn't be there, everyone knows. Everyone knows, and the CEO doesn't do anything. The result is always the same. The top performing people are going to leave. They are going to leave because they don't want to be in a place that is unable to make hard decisions, and they are going to leave because they have a choice. Now, if you are building an organization that you have people that shouldn't be there and are still there. And the top performing people are leaving. That's the beginning of the end. In my book, there is one of the chapters uh, that is called Firing and Hiring. And when I send the book proposal, some of the, some of the, um, um, you know, so, some of the publisher told me it should be hiring and firing. And I said, no, firing is hard decision. Hiring is easy decisions. You have to learn how to make hard decisions and you have to learn how to fire because before you can hire. And the, 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 you know, the major insight of this chapter is that for every new hire that you have, mark your calendars 30 days down the road and ask yourself one question. Knowing what I know today, would I hire this person? Now, if the answer is yes, then go and tell that person that you are very pleased with their performance and they are exceeding your expectations. And if you can give them more equity, that will be a great time to actually give them more equity. But if the answer is no, fire them immediately. Because from this point on, they are creating damage to the entire organizations and they are creating damage to themselves. They are already set on a trajectory of not being successful. And everyone knows that, right? And so... You're creating damage to yourself by not making the hard decisions. You're creating damage to the organizations that they are watching you and they know that this person shouldn't be there and you are not doing anything about it. And you are actually creating damage to this person. This person is not going to be successful. It's way better for them to leave now and try to find a different place that they will be successful. And, and this is critical, right? Because when you don't do that, then you end up with actually creating, you know, not stepping up to the DNA that you wanted on one hand, but also, and, and by the way, if you ask me what part of the DNA document should cover that, we make mistakes and we fix them fast. That's it. Um, and, uh, um, and, and so, you know, when, when I look at the different CEOs that have to deal with it, with, you know, one of the management members, and I eventually asked them, when did you finally fire that person? I heard only one answer, too late. And, uh, and so for a second, I would say, um, you know, occasionally I speak at entrepreneurship uh, conferences. And when I tell that, occasionally there are people coming to me afterwards and saying, now I know what I need to do. So if I trigger that for someone during this podcast, and as a result, they are doing the right thing. And as a result, they are increasing their likelihood of being successful. Then I did my part. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. You know, I, I built ways. I built movies. I have half a dozen different startups that I've started. And another half that I'm helping them to become successful. 
Um, and that part everyone knows. But there is another strong personality of me, which is being a teacher. So I will feel equally rewarded when I build stuff myself or I actually guide someone to build it. And this is why I'm, you know, helping a, a lot of startups or ending up to be a mentor for half a dozen of startups and in helping the CEO to become more successful. And this is why I wrote my book. I wrote my book in order to help entrepreneurs to become more successful. Well, that's the book, by the way, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. And, the, um, and I'm fulfilling my destiny with this book because uh, my destiny is about value creation. And I have two ways of doing that. One is, uh, is building startups that help people to, you know, that help people eventually doing good and doing well. And the other one is, uh, is help entrepreneurs to become more successful. And at the end of the day, you know, you want to look at the, uh, these, uh, um, what is changing the world. And the reality is that these are entrepreneurs. You look at all the great things that we are using and they were all started by an entrepreneur, not that long time ago. And so you look at the top 10 companies of the world and, you know, and two of them are about 45 years old, but the rest of them are less than 30. This is absolutely amazing. And if we, if I can help them to become more successful, then I'm, I feel, you know, rewarded. I feel that I'm making a bigger impact. I, um, I like that this is fulfilling my destiny. In that, so going back into the journey, and this is really important, um, I want us to think of, uh, of maybe some of the top tech companies of the world, right? So Google and Amazon and Netflix, that they're about 25, 26 years old. And then maybe Facebook and Tesla and Airbnb that are about uh, 16 or so, even less than that years old. And ask yourself how much of their value was created in the first decade versus rest of the time. Now, rest of the time could be six years in terms of test in case of Tesla, 16 years in the case of Google and so forth. And, and then, but the aggregation is actually ended up that only 10% of the value was created in the first decade and 90% in the rest of the time. And the reason is rather simple. What companies do in the beginning of their journey, they try to figure out product market fit. And once they do that, they go into the next part of the journey, which is uh, maybe figuring out growth or figuring out business model. And then they go to the next part of the journey, which is if you, if you already figure out growth, then you need to figure out business model. If you already figure out business model, then you need to figure out growth. And only then you are ready to take off. And that times, that three journeys is about a decade. It's a long journey to get there. And it's a long roller coaster journey of fear. The hardest part for the CEO is switching years. Because when you move from product market fit into the next phase, everything changes. The focus of the companies changes. The, the, the people that you need to have into this journey, some of them are different. The most important thing up until now, what was retention is now not the most important thing. Now we need to figure out a business model. So we need to, you know, we need sales, we need different types of the organizations, or now we're trying to figure out growth and we need, you know, a growth leader that is not the product leader. Could be, but it's probably not the same one. And so organization changes, focus of the companies changes and potentially you as a CEO is no longer the right CEO for the company. And you might need to find a replacement for yourself. Now, these three phases are different DNAs of the company. They are not DNA, it's actually more of a different focus of the company. And that is pretty dramatic changes. And when this happens, then you have to shift gears because if you stuck in a previous phase, if you're trying to keep on improving product market fit, even though that you have reached a nice retention, you're wasting your time. You, your opportunity is now to go and figure out something else. And if you're not doing that, then, then the challenge is that you're going to actually remain in your place. You're going to stuck 
you're going to get stuck in the phase that is not the phase that you need. And most people have hard time to switch gears. So, so this is really important to understand that you have to switch gears and you have to, you don't need to prepare for the next phase. As soon as you get there, it's an overnight flip that you need to go into the next phase. Because until you get to product market fit, nothing else matters. Once you get there, then you are already there. You don't need to change the product anymore. Obviously, you will make more adjustment and more improvement, and you will need to deal with capacity and scalability, and you will need to deal with, um, um, you know, increasing the addressable market. So let's say that you started your product in English, and now you need to actually have more languages in order to support a, a bigger addressable market. But the main issue in terms of creating the value, you already established that you don't need to try to perfect that. You don't need that in order to win the market. Now it's time for you to go and win the market. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. You talk about product market fit a lot, and you said that it took ways five years to hit product market fit. Why Why so long? So in, it was four years. And um, look, ways is, while if I will be here in 2008 and I will tell you the story, you are going to download the app immediately, right? I'm going to help you to avoid traffic jams. You already like that, right? And so the story was in place. What happened is that people downloaded the product, and in, in our journey, look, we, we started in 2007, and that was only the three of us back then. And the first version of Waze was running on a PDA. Remember? Long, long, long time ago, there were dinosaurs, and then PDA, and then Nokia phones, and today we all have Androids and iPhones, right? This long time ago is 15 years. And then we raised capital and we started officially the company in 2008 and we built the first version running on Nokia phones. So that was uh, in 95 back then. And, uh, um, and it was actually, we launched the product in 2009 in Israel and it was actually pretty good. And so we decided that, wait a minute, this is actually crowdsource everything, not just, not just traffic information, but also the map itself. So the map is being created by the people. And we say that, wait a minute, if we, if this turns out to be successful in Israel, we can launch that everywhere. And this is what we did at the end of 2009, beginning of 2010. And people like this story, right? So we, the drivers, are going to fight traffic jams together. And so they have downloaded the app, and it was not good enough. If you wouldn't try that in, um, in Sydney, in trying to go from your home to your office back in 2010, then the route that you are going to get might not make sense. And you will basically say, this is not good enough. And so this is exactly what happened. We realized that it's not good enough and we did what we should have done. And this is speaking with drivers. And we asked them what didn't work for you, right? So we, we knew these drivers tried that and they are not coming back anymore. And so we asked them. And they told us, oh, that was lousy. That was a piece of crap. That was not good enough. And so we fixed pretty much everything that they've told us. And we launched the next version a month later, and we know that this is it. And it's not. So we're doing it all over again. We speak with the drivers. We realize what doesn't work for them. We build the next version, and we go with the conviction that this time it's definitely going to work. And it's not. Another iteration, another iteration, more than a year of iterations until we eventually got it to the level of good enough. 
Now, in some of those iterations, you're making baby step forward. In some of those iterations, it's actually worse than before. In some of those, you're making a leapfrog. Now, you don't know which one is which. If you would know, then you will only do the leapfrogs, and this is it. Now, when it's starting to become successful, then you actually see that as like a ripple effect, right? Happening in, in, in the U.S., one metropolitan after the other. Los Angeles first, and then San Francisco, and then Atlanta, and Washington, D.C., and New York, and Chicago, and Miami. One metropolitan after the other. In, in Europe, one country after the other. So Italy first, and then Netherlands, and France, and Sweden, and Spain. And in Latin America, one country after the other. Colombia first, and then Brazil, and then Mexico, and then rest of Latin America. And, um, and, and that was 2011, right? And so we started 2007. We only got it right in 2011, about four years to get there. And uh, um, what happened next is Waze is extremely successful because of the use case. So the use case is that people are using Waze every day. They're driving to the office with Waze. And when you have high frequency of use, you are going to end up with a very simple growth strategy. Word of mouth. You don't need to do anything. Because people are using it multiple times a month or multiple times a day. And they, in some of those, they have an opportunity to tell someone, and this is exactly what's going to happen. So if your product have high frequency of use, and you figure out product market fit, your next phase is actually growth. Because this is going to happen, most of it, by yourself, by itself. And you don't need to invest in it. And after you figure out that you are actually growing faster than everyone else, only then go and figure out the business model. And so in 2012, Waze was actually growing faster than the entire navigation combined, right? So you take all navigation devices and all in-car navigation system and all navigation apps. Waze outgrew all of them together. And in 2013, Google came with a proposal to acquire us, and we said yes. And I left the day after so I can build more startups. Um, now, this is really important to understand because the, in many cases, we would like to think that we actually have the ability to influence on, on the journey. So we figure out product market fit, and now we decide that we've got to figure out business model. It's not up to us. It's up to the use case. If you have high frequency of use, use case, then go and figure out growth first. If you have low frequency of use, then you unfortunately will need to acquire users throughout your entire journey. And if this is the case, then what you really want to do is figure out the business model first. Now, the business model um, is something because you will need to actually make money on based on every new users in the future. And and if you're if you have a word of mouth, then you first of all need to capture the market. And only then do that. Now, if you think about the what happened to the market in those 15 years when we started until today, then 15 years ago, nearly no one had a driving app. If you needed to go someplace that you that is new, then you would open up paper maps, right? And you will look at the around and you'll figure out, okay, this is how I'm going to get there. And sometimes you'll say, this is how I'm going to get to a proximate location, and then I'm going to ask someone how to get there. And no one was using an app or a digital service. Now today, there is nearly no one that is driving without an app. And the good news is that uh, Waze is, uh, um, is, in most cases, is the one that is being driven the most. You know, people occasionally ask me whether or not it was the right decision to sell at the time. And, and I will tell them, look, end of the day, there are right decisions or no decisions. Because when you make a decision, you don't know what it would be like if you will choose a different path. Now, if, we, if you would ask me today if Waze would be worth way more than $1.1 billion that it was acquired by Google back in 2013, absolutely yes. But what we don't know is whether or not Waze would, would become what it is today if, without that decision back then. And so when you make a decision, it's the right decisions. And if you eventually get and hit the wall, then make a new decision. Because what it turns out is that what makes entrepreneurs successful, what makes CEOs successful, is, is few, very, very few behaviors that are consistent 
one of them is never giving up, right? So, so, so the perseverance, right? The attitude of we are not going to give up, even though that we are going to have a long journey, that we are trying to cross a desert of no traction, we are not going to give up. We might die, but we will never give up. And this is the first one. The second one is making decision with conviction. Because if you don't make those decisions, what's going to happen is that everyone else is looking into your leadership and you're basically, basically saying, okay, this guy doesn't know how to make a decision. And therefore, we are less likely to become successful. There is a Harvard um, um, business uh, review uh, research that actually uh, was looking at 16,000 CEOs and their behavior. And they have indicated that making decision with conviction is the most significant correlation into successful companies. So making decision with conviction is, is the second one. Listen to users, in particular in the early phase. Now, this is really important, right? So, so the difference between a startup and a corporate is that a corporate have their product and they have their go-to-market strategy and they have their pricing and business model in place. And all they have to do is keep on doing the same thing over and over again. A startup have no product market fit, no business model, no growth strategy. They have absolutely nothing. They are in a discovery of these elements throughout their journey, right? And so obviously we will need different behaviors in these cases, but what we have to do in order to become successful here is that we have to listen to our users or customers. Because if we don't, we are unable to figure out product market fit. And if we are unable to figure out product market fit, then we will die. As simple as that. And, and leadership. And at the end of the day, you know, you have a team of people that needs to follow you. And you want them to want to follow you. And this is going to, to happen through, you know, decision making, through interactions, through communication, through a lot of leadership styles and tools that they will eventually want to be part of this journey. And if they don't want to be part of this journey, then when it comes, when tough, when, when, you know, when, when eventually it's going to become really tough and you are in the middle of the desert of no traction and you are trying to get everyone aligned and keep on walking in the desert, some of them are starting to give up. And this is going to make it really hard. Mm. So, Uri, I could talk to you all day. You've given us basically a product development masterclass and basically how to find product market fit. A um, couple last questions and we have to wrap. Uh, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, we've got a question from uh, one of our students in uh, our program, uh, our subscription product and membership product, Founder Plus. Uh, this is from George Edward Benton. He said, what's the one thing that hasn't been asked in an interview from you, uh, which you wish someone would ask you? So, so you know, uh, l let me say it differently, right? So, end of the day, uh, throughout this interview, you let me speak most of the time, right? And so, obviously, I spoke out my mind, and, and, and uh, um, I don't think that there is something that uh, you should have asked me and you haven't, right? Because uh, I, I kind of... Uh, carried a speech and, and, um, and trying to deliver messages and value to entrepreneurs. And, uh, and I think that, uh, uh, this is really significant, but, but in general, I would say the following, but today is the first day of the rest of your life. And, and if there are, there is something that you are basically telling yourself, I wish I had that done differently. Then today is the time to change it. Um, We'll move to the hot seat round, uh, rapid fire questions and answers, and then we're, we're at time. Uh, so the first question is, what industry will the next ways emerge from? So for me, there is no industry, right? This is a matter of a problem that it's worth solving. And that could be in the medical space, in the fintech space, in mobility, in transportation, in any business, in any industry that you like. It doesn't make any difference. If there is a problem that it's worth solving, then it's not about the industry, it's about the problem. What's the biggest problem in our world that a business needs to solve? 
Oh, there are a lot of them. You know, the good news is that there are a lot of problems. The bad news is that there are a lot of problems, right? And so, um, it's not about a problem that you need to go and solve. It's a problem that you actually get emotionally attached by, and you have the urge of solving that problem. And only then you go and validate whether or not this problem is actually big enough or not. But it has to start from the inside. Let, let me give you an example, right? So, so think of medical services in the U.S. They are five times more expensive than they are in Germany. Now, it's not that they're better than Germany. They're simply five times more expensive. And then you're saying, wait a minute. Medical services in the U.S., this is 10% of the GDP, right? And this is way overpriced. And you are saying, okay, this is the biggest, biggest problem that I can think of in the U.S. But if you don't care, if you're not in the U.S., if you don't care, then the fact that I will tell you this is a huge problem doesn't move, an, doesn't move a notch for you. You don't really care. You have to start with something that you care. What's... What's the most important skill for an entrepreneur to invest in early in their career? I have five children. They are at the ages of 32 to 22. And obviously I see them at the beginning of their career and I'm trying to guide them. And, uh, and I would say there, there are probably few skills that you need to acquire um, that are going to, to serve you well throughout your entire career, regardless of what you're going to do. And, and one of them is working in teams, right? So you want to work in a place that we actually have other people working with and build those soft skills relationship of, uh, of working in teams. And the second one will be salesmanship. I want you to go and take a position in sales so you would actually understand what it takes. It's really hard because what happened in sales is that uh, at the end of the day, look, in, in most of our positions, there is no competition. There are no uh, challenges that you face with with the dialogue, right? And so there is, in general, collaboration and not, not confrontation. In sales, there is confrontation. You need to convince someone to take an idea from your mind and plant that in their mind. And then you need to convince them to take money out of their wallet and put it in your wallet. And these two things are hard, and you need to learn them. And the best way to learn them is at the beginning of the career. Now, it doesn't say that you need to eventually become a salesperson or work in that, but what you need to do is understand what it takes, because this is critical. And then, and then the third one will be about leadership. So you need to figure out a way to make people want to follow. What's something you've learned today as an uh, what, yeah, What's something you've learned today? So, sorry, can you re repeat that? Uh, what's something that you've learned today? You know, I learn every day. I learn different things every day. And some of them I adapt fast. And, uh, um, and, and you know, from this point on, uh, I will try to use them. Some of them I adapt slow. So I learned that and it's still, I need to learn that multiple times until I will feel that this is uh, the right thing for me. And some of the lessons I don't learn. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm stubborn, right? I not always learn uh, the right lessons. All right, last question. Uh, if you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? So, so I think of uh, maybe three major people that, that have changed, you know, my attitude and I look up to them and I say basically, you know, this is uh, as close as it gets to... Uh, um, to, you know, to, to an amazing person that have changed dramatically the world. The first one is uh, Thomas Edison. And the reason is that not only that today we are all using his product and, and this is obvious, but, but in his journey of trying to, to create electric light, he failed so many times. And one day someone came to him and said, you have failed a thousand times. By the way, that was not a thousand, it was 770. Um, but you have failed a thousand times. Why don't you give up? And he said, no, up until now, I found a thousand ways that it didn't work. And each one of them made me closer to finding the one that does work. So, so this attitude is, is unique. And, and then you look at the, at the recent ages and you basically tell yourself, okay, wait a minute, there are two 
absolutely great entrepreneurs that have changed dramatically the world and have done that multiple times. Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. Love it. Well, uh, Uri, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you shared so much wisdom and experience, and uh, this is really going to help our community. I, I personally learned a lot as well. So thank you again. And uh, last question, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself, your work, and your latest book? The book is probably available on Amazon or, um, or you know, online sites, so this is easy. Um, my website, orelevin.com, as simple as that. And then this is where all of my startups are, and this is all of my, you know, different presentations and uh, and a lot of the stuff that I'm building is right there. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic And I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.